Business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, entrepreneurs, authors, creatives, and so much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Talking about Dogecoin, maybe it doesn't have to have financial underpinning. Like, why are people so obsessed with that? Like, what is the, like, can you tell me the exact right valuation of Comcast? Can you tell me the exact right valuation of Tesla? Because you can't, right? These things have an emotional component to them. And and I think people try to back into, well, what's the PE and all these kind of things. And you're trying to find, you're grasping at straws a little bit. And, and that's why when things take off, people get so frustrated uh, and they're like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Like, this is just, this is nothing. This isn't fair. And it's like, okay, like, yes, but like, if you want to be rational, you're in the wrong place. I'm lucky that my parents have been relatively understanding in the past as far as like, you know, giving me access to therapy and mental health. But I really feel for the people who don't feel like anyone understands them or anyone cares, really. Here with a highlight reel of some of our many interviews, including a corporate burnout turned mindfulness guru, a Hooters waitress turned James Beard Foundation finalist, and a Wall Street veteran who found a new worldview and a second act in a fishing village in Ghana. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fullDradio.com. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at FullDRadio. Full Disclosure Rewind, we start with Jenny Doan, maybe the most famous quilter in the world, author, YouTube personality, founder of the Missouri Star Quilt Company. The book is How to Stitch an American Dream. Please take us back into your financial situation you know, after you had your seventh child, and it was a really rough go of it in the late 80s and early 90s. It was a rough go. We were still living paycheck to paycheck. And um, we were, uh, our little boy, who was, when he was about five, he got a tumor in his um, lymph gland. And that comes with a lot of medical bills. And we were barely just hanging on. So anything extra I had to work extra for, like, if we wanted to get an appliance, one of our appliances went out or something like that, I would have to work extra and do something so that we could afford that extra thing. And so there really wasn't extra for anything. And um, I was canning all the foods. I gleaned the fields. We lived in an area that was very prolific for, you know, grown vegetables and things like that. And I would glean fields. I had a big garden. You know, that's how I fed my family. And we just got swept under with this whole medical problem with Josh. And it just really, it just really took the wind out of our sails. And uh, we actually went and talked to a debt counselor. Those were brand new things then. They had never, you know, and, and, Mm. you know, I mean, they didn't really have them available for people. And we had to actually pay some money to talk to him. And then he said, I don't even know how you're living. I think you should file a, a medical bankruptcy. And we were just like stunned because we thought, he was going to somehow help us out of that. 
And uh, turns out, you know, he says, I don't even know how you're eating. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't always know either. But I mean, obviously, we were fine. But we filed this medical bankruptcy. And we just felt like maybe it would be cheaper for us to live someplace else. Ron had spent a couple of years living in the Midwest. Mm. And he, he said it was much cheaper to live there than it was in California. I think at the time, it was the height of the interest rate craze. And I think we were paying about 12% interest rate on our mortgage. Mm. And, um, you know, and so I think we just thought, well, we would, we would give it a try. You know, I, I was one of those who'd never really been, except for my travel in high school, I'd never really been out of the state too much. And, and I was like, where is the Midwest exactly? What does that mean? You know, and, and, uh, we would, you know, Ron explained to me, you know, where it was and what we would do. And he, we kind of just put our finger on a map and said, well, we can just come here and try it. And, and, uh, it was right around Kansas city and there's a lot of smaller towns and we thought it would be cheaper if we lived in a smaller town. You know, we had a little bit of a thought process, but that whole trip and everything like that, you know, we sold just nearly everything we owned to pay for a U-Haul and the things to take with us that were precious to us. I got to ask you, how do you, how do you, I read this and I wonder, you know, I, I, I think about my parents siblings and they had extended you know families in Iran six or seven brothers and sisters or seven or eight or nine and it had to have been a concern to divvy up the amount of food or you know I I understand to the extent that you want to live off the fat of the land and there was this agricultural instinct you know from Salinas where your father uh mm-hmm. with, you know had a job with the Smucker Jam company but it is difficult to feed and clothe and oversee seven children and moreover you're not being paid for schooling them you're kind of CEO of the house yeah <laughs> yeah, I actually could write a whole book on that. I'll tell you what I feed. I've had five kids on a on a about fifty bucks a week, and I had my children. Actually, I signed one children to each one child to each day because I had seven children, so there were seven days, and that child was over what we were going to eat for dinner that day, and it was their job to help me in the kitchen as well. And so, uh, so they would say, "We want this." They'd scour the um, the ads to find the cheapest, you know, how they could afford what they wanted to make. And, you know, they all, they've all learned really good lessons about how to do that. You know, my daughters, when they got married, they would call me up and they would say, I have this, this, and this, what can I make? You know, and I loved that game because it's like, all right, well, let's see, what can we make if we have this, this, and this, you know, but, you know, nobody starved. Uh, Everybody had plenty. Nobody went to bed hungry. And um, I just, I mean, I don't know. I was just blessed with the gift to be able to figure that out. We continue with Lauren Young of Reuters Money, her heart heavy as her son starts his senior year of high school. So throw out some throw out some pro tips for our fellow mother listeners out there, our prospective mothers, uh, mothers of very young children who Not don't know how to mothers, broach the subject Robin, of an allowance. Fathers too. Fathers too, yeah. Um, well, my pro tips are just talk to your kids about money. It's really important. I'm literally sitting in my home office right now. My favorite book about money and kids is written by our friend, Ron Lieber, who wrote an amazing book called The Opposite of Spoiled. And it's all about raising grateful kids. And it's just, it's really, um, it's very great practical advice. And he talks to a lot of experts. My favorite anecdote is he had a dad come home literally with like all of the cash equivalent of what that family needed for the month to cover their mortgage, their car payments, their insurance. You know, he put the piles of money on the dining room table and said, here's the money and here's how we allocate it. 
And it was a very visual thing for kids. Kids don't get to see cash. They see plastic. Well, no, unless you grew up unless you grew up in Miami. But I digress. Uh, oh, go ahead. Hotel Scarface. Go ahead. No, Hotel Scarface, I was gonna say. But um I lo- I just let you have to talk to your kids about money. It's a family thing, money. It's really important. And and college too, and what you can afford. And I've been saving for college since my son was born. Every single month I've been putting money in a five twenty nine. You know, it's a pair of shoes or, you know, put the $50 in Leo's college fund. So on the other end of this talk, talking about the opposite of spoiled and Ron Lieber, how do you worry about him? Suppose let's, let's game this out. He gets significant financial aid, gets to go to the college of his dreams. You don't want to turn around and at age 22 say, oh, by the way, son, you have something approximating a trust fund. Have at it. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Um, that money would be for a down payment or, you know, if, if, if we're lucky enough to have excess money, by the way, Robin, my dad, I'm the oldest of four kids. My dad was a butcher. He saved money for all of us. He invested in the markets. And I think that's part of it too, is I, my dad would always talk to us about the stocks that he bought for us. And because I went to a state school, I actually walked away from college with, you know, $10,000, um, that my dad gave me and I've invested that money. That's actually the foundation of my financial account at Vanguard that I was, um, you know, which is looking pretty good these days. You know, I've put money in it other ways too, and I've rolled over an IRA from all of the jobs we've had together. But at the end of the day, you know, my son knows all of these things. I talk to him about it. I don't necessarily show him my bank statements, but he gets it. And I think I think it's really important. Like I said, I think just think it's important to talk to your kids about money. You shouldn't. It's not. It's, people are more willing to talk about sex than they are about money. Next, Alice Furwood of The Economist magazine attempts to explain crypto. Few minutes we have left with you. I, you know, at some point, I, you know, if you're vaccinated, we're going to be going back to cocktail mm-hmm. parties, and I imagine you're going to get buttonholed about Dogecoin and Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I don't even know if you have a 30-second explanation of what these guys are. They're such a Rorschach. To some people, they're an escape from fiat economy. You know, I can go to Miami and all sorts of tech bros who don't even know what they're talking about who can lecture me for 30 minutes on the importance of the blockchain. Uh, I don't see the pressing need for these currencies, maybe outside of opting out of, uh, for example, a dollar or a euro that is far removed from its original uh, value that was tied, let's say, to gold or something hard in terms of specie. What what are you going to answer? What are you going to tell people when they're talking about 20,000% returns on these things, about Tesla suddenly accepting it, about it being entered into the the, the writing of, of Saturday Night Live when Elon Musk hosted? I mean, I, I can't imagine. I can't do it for 30 seconds or even 30 minutes. No, I mean, one of the things that sort of writing this special report made me think about was this idea that there is sort of competition between currencies and means of payment. And, mm. you know, although it might sound far-fetched to me that you would want, ever want to replace sort of a, a dollar um, payments mechanism with a with a Bitcoin one, it, it's not impossible. Um, I guess the, the thing that I, I think people tend to get confused about, though, is a lot of these sort of cryptocurrencies are both decentralized and digital. And the decentralization is the whole sort of like anarchist, we don't want the government to be involved, we want it to be at arm's length from central banks and money printers and all that kind of stuff. And the decentralization is very expensive. That's why sort of Bitcoin is so expensive to maintain, you know, energy wise, you have to have this network of decentralized miners. It's not very efficient to have things decentralized because it means that you need everyone to agree, not just the centralized sort of authority. 
Um, but the digital side of them, you know, they were sort of ahead of the curve in being digital money. And, you know, Dogecoin, for example, um, is actually reasonably quick and efficient means of payment. That's why it sort of started being adopted as as like tip payments for, for some sort of online sites and mm. things. So, you know, it's not that I think that the that these things are totally ridiculous and that you can't use them for anything. You know, I, it's a really interesting innovation. I don't see the appeal personally of the decentralization because I think it's just so inefficient that it's never going to beat out a centralized system unless something terrible happens to the world. But I do see the appeal of the digital. And I think that's why you're seeing, you know, central banks, banks, all all the people who work within the existing sort of monetary system adopt that aspect of it. Caleb Silver of Investopedia took a crack at explaining the crypto craze. Where's the pain in this? Is the dollar or euro not sufficiently handling? I mean, it's not a store of value enough. Are people doing this because they're bored? Is it uh, because they're worried about fiat currency and inflation? Is it just a Rorschach of whatever you want it to be? I mean, what is the underlying pain slash value proposition of these newfangled Again, Dogecoin. It has a Shiba Inu on it. And uh, yes, you could use it at Dallas Mavericks games. But it also, you know, channeling the inner Louis Rukeyser, it seems like we're going to be looking back at these and, and saying, what the heck were we thinking? Or or maybe not? Yeah, we. I think for some of them, we'll definitely be scratching our heads just like we were with the sock puppet in 1999-2000. Uh, thank God that didn't last very long. But I think a part of this, a part of the digital currency fascination, if you think back when this was started in the in sort of the ashes of the great financial crisis was this disbelief in a lot of investors and a lot of people in general about money and the solidity of the financial system and the you know the validity of the stock market and whether it was a rigged game or not. So you see these digital currencies born out of that. But also when you think about one of the key reasons Bitcoin and the other digital currencies were invented was because of money transfers. And there are so much money transfer going on between the US and other countries around the world or other countries, country to country. There's so much of that going on. It's, it's a very it's got a lot of friction uh, with in terms of the fees that you pay and all the different companies you pass through. So Bitcoin was sort of came out of that as a solution to reducing the friction of money transfers between one country or another, or one individual or another. And that sort of caught its moment, obviously, in 2017, when it became very popular and we saw the price rise to about 20,000. And then it went away. But now it's back because institutions believe in this as well. The fact that people are going to want other assets and other means of conducting commerce and storing wealth, that you're starting to see these big institutions adopt these cryptocurrencies. That's huge. And so some of them will definitely not make it, but I bet you we'll be talking about Bitcoin in five to 10 years. Jay Yarrow, CNBC's executive editor, thought I was old-fashioned to question crypto. Dogecoin is soaring. Uh, why is it soaring on the back of Elon Musk appearing on SNL? Well, Elon has been talking about Doge quite a bit on Twitter. Uh, and there's an anticipation that once he gets on SNL, he'll either say something or make some sort of subtle nod to Doge, which will push it further. Um, I think Mark Cuban was on uh, Ellen DeGeneres' show last week talking about Dogecoin. And I remember he tweeted, I'm going to be on Ellen DeGeneres' show and I'm going to talk about Dogecoin. And I sent a note to our team saying, hey, let's keep an eye on this and let's keep an eye on the price of Doge because basically he's going to a whole new audience. Uh, of people 
who are not following crypto or maybe don't understand crypto, not that anyone seems to really understand crypto, but it's a whole new audience of people who would not necessarily be in the game. And when you have Mark Cuban, billionaire, tremendous success, celebrity going on this and talking about Dogecoin, you know, people will be like, well, how much is it? Oh, it's 20 cents or it's less than a penny or whatever the crazy thing is. Like, yeah, I'll take a flyer on that. Yeah, why not? Why not put five or 10 bucks into it? And it's, and it's soared. And the more it goes up, the more success there is. And there's more, the more you're like, hey, why not? And when is you it, think about isn't money... Isn't that the and, very yeah. definition of... Isn't that the very definition of speculation? I mean, if you were to get a press release from a Boca Raton, you know, Boca Raton boiler room about these 20 cent stocks and everything, and if you could just get it up a couple pennies and these guys can pump and dump it, this just seems to be a more fun entertainment. Like everybody's in on the joke that Doge is Doge and we're trying to get in ahead of the next guy buying it isn't that the very definition of speculation uh sure it is now what so what i, I mean i know you were talking about this uh on your pre on some of the other episodes uh i was listening with caleb um yeah i guess so it, what's is this well, when you say so I, what I it like makes this, me sound like an old man like i'm you know i, I yeah i'm not right. with the times. i, I mean and i guess like and the, you and i have always had this banter what is what is dogecoin what is dogecoin why should it have any fundamental underpinning because everybody's in on the joke? I don't know. I it? mean, like, look, if you maybe it doesn't have to have financial underpinning. Like, why are people so obsessed with that? Like, what is the like, can you tell me the exact right valuation of Comcast? Can you tell me the exact right valuation of Tesla? Can you tell me the exact right valuation of Netflix? You can't, right? These things have an emotional component to them. And, and I think people try to back into, well, what's the PE? And then you go on a historical PE and you say, well, historically, we should be at 18 times. And all these kind of things, and you're trying to find, you're grasping at straws a little bit, and and that's why when things take off, people get so frustrated, uh, and they're like, "Well, this doesn't make any sense. Like, this is just, this is nothing. This isn't fair." And it's like, okay, like yes, but like if you want to be rational, you're in the wrong place. Uh, I don't like markets have some level of rationality to them, but they have a lot of irrationality to them. We saw this a lot with GameStop going nuclear, right? When GameStop soared, everyone was like, well, this is crazy. This just doesn't make any sense. This should not be happening. And you know what? The prices stayed pretty sticky uh, in a pretty elevated level. And maybe this is completely wrong. And maybe it's going to crater and go back to zero. Or maybe, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ryan, I'm forgetting, Cohen, I think is his name, uh, coming from Chewy, is in fact going to transform the company and, and grow into that valuation and beyond. You know, the market, again, the market is always right and the market is always wrong. And trying to fight it or think too hard about it is probably not a great thing to do. And I would say that I, I hear what you're saying. Well, this is speculation and someone's going to get hurt. You know, particularly during the GameStop saga, you heard a lot of this isn't like you do not hear people. There's nobody out there being like, this is great. Doge makes a ton of sense. Get in on it. You can't miss. It's a great opportunity. I think every single person that I'm listening to, and maybe I'm listening to either the right people or the wrong people, but every single person I hear says, this is weird. This is speculative. This has echoes of mania. People are going to get hurt. So I think anybody who steps into this arena and decides to get in in this space, they should have their eyes pretty wide open about what's going to happen to them. And despite all the speculation, of, if you want to call it that, over the past year of everything that's happened within markets, you know, the media is usually pretty good at trying to find the sorry stories of people who lost their life savings. And they are out there. Most of those people acknowledge, hey, I knew what, what the risks I was getting into with this. Chef Brittany Anderson, Beard Foundation finalist and a regular on National Food and Cook-Off TV, 
on the prevalence of substance abuse in the restaurant biz. I have a curveball question for you, remembering the late um, and, and more Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential. One of the memories in this is how uh, pungent and experienced substance abuse and depression is mm. in the kitchen. Uh, what is it about that industry? I mean, I, I, I remember just the guy that the master uh, uh, pastry chef, the bread guy who had a heroin problem, for example, and they couldn't they couldn't bake the bread without him because he was the only one who knew it. He would come in and punch the dough, but he was a really problematic person, as Bourdain was himself. He told you he wasn't always dependable. What is it about that industry? Is it is it the hours? Is it the lack of you know cash flow gratification, the competition? I think it's a combination of those things. I think the industry is changing a lot. I also think that men have something to do with this. Um, as a woman, and in my kitchens, with lots of women in them, they are just a different environment than those initial kitchens that I worked in when it was all dudes, very competitive, no support systems, um, drink till you can't, you know, like, if you couldn't drink, then you're not a cook. Like, that was a big thing it w for me coming up, and I think still for a lot of cooks in many kitchens. But it's changing a lot. Um, I My kitchens aren't like that, and I, I don't I think most kitchens have changed from that. Substance abuse, though, is still a very big problem. And I would say, in, as cooks and in front of house, we're surrounded by alcohol, and it's all about a good time and making people happy and always being in a party you know, kind of spirit. So that can be hard for people to turn off. And I think when, um, when you're not in the restaurant and you're not in that environment, it's hard to see how your normal life plays out. You're not always in a party, you know? And so some people try to make it always a party. I feel very lucky I, I haven't struggled with that, but I have seen, I've had cooks who um, just couldn't be around it and, and can't cook anymore. They can't be in a restaurant environment because there's alcohol. And I do think in Richmond, we've had a couple of chapters of Ben's Friends open. Um, Jason Alley and Joe Sprada are sober now and um, run a uh, group therapy sessions. I mean, I, I haven't been, so maybe it's not therapy, but it's like talking and uh, meetings for people who are sober in the restaurant industry, which is really amazing. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and recommend this show to friends and family. If you're just joining us, we're doing our Great Rewind episode. Real estate finance professor Andra Ghent discussed the rethink of commercial real estate in the wake of the great COVID vacancy. Talk to me about shopping centers if you will. I am struck, Professor Ghent, at how many Starbucks in my vicinity and, and up and down you know, 95 in the Mid-Atlantic Ride Drive have shut down, and they've caused a kind of a bottlenecking and an over-dependence on the drive-throughs. And I look at these shopping centers, I guess a Starbucks has always been looked at as a kind of a peerless A-plus credit tenant. It's always going to be good for its rent. It's almost anchor-like. But honestly, there are some times in the mornings and the afternoons when the cars around the and it actually blocks the exit to the interstate or blocks the street or blocks the strip plaza. My point being is that places were not designed for a drive-through only culture. And it's been happening at, at, at units with McDonald's and other things. And maybe I was thinking that this has commercial real estate spectators worried about the way we design our commercial corridors. 
I think we're incredibly concerned about this. And here in Utah, it's a specific, it's a particular problem because we have the mountains surrounding Salt Lake City essentially trap in air pollution. So when we see people idling at drive throughs I mean, I mean, it's terrible. And the only way you can address this is with zoning restrictions. You have to have land use restrictions where you, you basically make these infeasible. Yeah, I mean, it's also, I think it's a terrible trend for people to just not get out of their cars. We all need a little bit of activity throughout the day to get healthy, to stay healthy. And it destroys the walkability of neighborhoods to have all these cars clogging the streets. And But a lot of restaurants, you're right, you're absolutely right, Robin, that they don't even want it. They figured out well, why am I paying this much space? I can just have people go through the drive-through and they don't really want, you know, you go to McDonald's, you're not really there for the dining experience. Um, it's not really the ambiance. And so, you know, just last weekend, we went to both an, a, a McDonald's and a Starbucks and we didn't have the option of physically going in. And so, yeah, I do think it's a really big problem and planners and uh, city city councils and uh, they're looking at it very closely and hopefully and thinking about what we can do to prevent these drive throughs from clogging up our streets. But are we really going to, I mean, have we, re- I guess there are only so many things you can study from 1917 and 1918, but are we really signing off on the dining room or fast casual experience for good? I mean, I for one... I got a lot of great thinking and writing and editing done inside the Starbucks dining room as much as they don't want me in there right now and they're inducing <laughs> me to order on the app or pick up or go through the drive through I mean, maybe this was too soon that they've shuttered all of these dining rooms. Maybe we're going to forget about this. Maybe we're going to come back. Maybe you're going to want to sit inside a Chipotle again as opposed to paying DoorDash to bring you the burrito. You know, I hate to say this, Robin, but I don't think you were Starbucks' favorite customer because you're not generating a ton of profit for them by sitting for an hour. Uh, you know, I do think some of this will come back and, and people obviously are getting much more comfortable with the the health risks. And we just sort of, ex- I think we a lot of us accept that this is a risk going forward. And if you're fully vaccinated and you get your boosters on time, it's a pretty small risk, really. You know, I, I think some of it will come back, but certainly, yeah, they've figured out, like, why would I pay? And then I have to pay somebody to clean that space, right? In addition to, to the surface area, I have to pay somebody to clean that space. So I do think some of this is here to stay. And maybe your kind of nicer neighborhood coffee shop that's not a national chain. Or I'm sure Starbucks has some that are still going to be open and want you to sit, but they are kind of reassessing. They've learned a little bit about the profitability of this. And, you know, similarly with some of these tablets, when you go into a restaurant, they're sort of realizing, particularly given the cost of labor right now, hey, I can do without a server for part of this. And yeah, there's some opportunities there. Tom Standage, deputy editor of The Economist magazine on the future of work. Wouldn't you much rather go and get a job that you could do remotely and stay at home and not have to commute and you know, people are. If you look at the the number of people applying for for jobs that can be done like that, they're, they're shooting up. And if you look at the you know, tech jobs and people retraining so that they can get jobs in tech, if you look at the fraction of programmers' jobs in America that are now listed that say you can work remotely, it's gone from fifteen percent to about ninety percent in the past wow. year. So it's absolutely assumed that you're not going to be able to. And, and we, you know, 
we're seeing um, enormous turnover, even in tech, because um, if you have a job a, 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 as a programmer and you, uh, you know, you're required to go into the office, even just you know two two days a week, maybe you may say, well, I could leave this job and I could easily get another job doing the same thing um, where I wouldn't have to go into the office at all. And so, well, Tom, th- that that brings me to the future of work. You say there's a broad consensus that the future is hybrid, and that more people will spend more days working from home. But there is much scope for disagreement on the details. How many days and which ones? And will it be fair? Uh, Surveys show that women are less keen to return to the office, so they may risk being passed over for promotions. Debates also loom over tax rules and monitoring of remote workers. I'm hearing from uh, workers specifically on the incremental costs. Yes, you might not be spending as much on fuel or uh, train fare for the long commute in the morning, and you can go straight from you know taking your kids to the bus right to the computer. But who is going to capture the dividends of those savings? For example, I, I know I'm taking you into a little bit of detail here. If a huge bank is saving on the square footage costs of real estate by shifting to a hybrid model, are they going to pocket those savings? Are they going to redistribute it back to workers? And if workers, say, want to work in a, a, a cheaper city, a lower cost of living city, are they able to keep those gains in the arbitrage or is the company going to claw it back in terms of uh, absolutely this is the whole this is exactly my point which is that there is this sort of on the surface agreement that you know let's have a more let's have a hybrid approach where we don't all go into the office every day in industries where that's possible now it's worth pointing out this is this does not apply to everyone right so even in rich developed countries like britain and america only about 50 percent of the workforce can do their jobs remotely so there's an enormous number of people who can't and we as people who can do this remotely i'm at home right now and i've barely been into the office for the for the past 18 months we need to remember how lucky we are that we can do this and that it doesn't apply to everyone However, um, there is this broad consensus mm. that those of us who can remote work remotely are going to do more of it. However, as soon as you get past that, there is disagreement about how much. And what's really interesting is there's there's a disagreement between bosses and workers about how many days they should come into the office. And we're seeing this all over the place. But the industry to watch is the tech industry, because the tech industry has the workers with the most bargaining power. They're the most sought after. And Apple has literally been having this, you know, this public fight with its employees about how many days a week they're expected to go into its massive new headquarters and it's been saying you know you have to come in i think three days a week and they've been saying well that means we need to live near cupertino which is an expensive part of the world whereas if we only had to come in one or two days a week or maybe one day every two weeks then we could afford to live um somewhere further away better quality of life uh, more affordable and so on and so you know we're seeing these arguments happening there's also an interesting disconnect not just between bosses and workers but between what workers say they want and then what they do if they're mm. left to their own devices so workers say oh yes i think you know two day, two days a week sounds about right working from home and then three days in the office but at the moment um uh, uh, you know uh, in a lot of countries um you have people who are able to work from home they're not being compelled to come in by their employers and they're doing something much closer to one or even half a day in the office um so in other words there's a there's a disconnect between what they say they want and what they actually do when given the choice so you've got that to deal with and i think that's going to be very interesting next year and then you've got all of these arguments about things like yes you know what happens if you move to a um to a cheaper city do does your employer cut your pay some tech firms are doing that so facebook and google are cutting people's pay when they move out of the bay area which is a very expensive place to live and they go to you know a, a cheaper city and so you know there's a big argument about that and what happens when you've got all of those people who work in financial services say in new york and they're not going into manhattan anymore they're staying actually outside of new york state so they're in a different state where should they be paying tax because you know officially they're employed in 
um, in New York State, but in practice, many of them are working from home full time in one of the neighboring states. And so, and Albany, you know, Albany has always been one of the most aggressive in terms of getting, you know, cracking down on people right. who split so there's, time. So there's lawsuits underway between between states over this because you know, obviously, serious amounts of money are, are at stake here. These are some very highly paid people who who do pay a lot of tax. So these are the sorts of things. So then, what about monitoring of remote workers? So how much surveillance is too much? I mean, does your employer have a right to put a piece of software on your computer? that like takes a screen grab every minute to make sure that you're actually working uh, or measures how much you move your mouse. I mean, there's, you know, and there's people figuring out how to make it look like they're working by, you know, attaching things to their mouse so that it looks like it's moving when actually <laughs> it's not. I mean, it's all of this kind of stuff. So there's a, a whole load of a whole load of things. And then I think the, the really, and a lot of that sounds trivial. I think the really, really important one is this question of fairness, because not going into the office is, you know, the people who are most keen on going back to the office are white men. And everybody else, we've got this amazing chart in, in the uh, in the annual that shows this. Um, everybody else, so women, minorities, and also parents. Uh, so it's white men without children are particularly keen to to, uh, uh, to go back to the office. Everybody else doesn't want to go back to the office quite so much for various reasons. So women are more likely to be involved in childcare. So they prefer the flexibility of being able to work from home more often. If you're you know if you're suffering racial discrimination at work or just microaggressions, um, not having to put up with that by going into the office is a, is evidently quite an appealing. Prospect. So, what this the danger here is that that forcing everyone uh, to go back into the office is unfair. And then, if you give people the choice, then only the young white men go back into the office, or disproportionate numbers of young white men go back into the office. And they're then the people who hang out with the the bosses and get promoted, and that's not fair. And, and so, what do you do about this? And one of the points we make is that the the future workplace is only going to be fair if bosses engineer it to be fair. So, what do you do? And how do you if you give everyone the choice of when to come in? How do you deal with the fact that that is going to to lead to potentially these unfair outcomes and how do you how do you measure what's happening because in theory you could have a much more egalitarian workforce when you've got people you know what people call a, zo- a zoomocracy and everyone is you know the same size tile um, on the screen and also in theory you could make all sorts of progress on on diversity and inequality because you could hire people from a much larger pool you don't just have to hire people who are in the city where you're hiring or can move to a city where you're hiring you can hire people in other countries you can hire people you know from other parts of the country and so in theory there's there's the opportunity to make great progress on equity and, and fairness and and diversity and inclusion and the danger is that we actually end up going in the opposite direction and we end up with workplaces that are less fair as a result of this change i had a candid talk with re sharma the young manhattan voice behind social media phenomenon wall street confessions i'm going to read an extended post from wall street confessions when i first met my husband he told me He loved me because of my independence and drive. Our relationship thrived through the challenges of college, banking, both of us, business school, him, and law school, me, because we supported and respected each other as equals. We married two years ago and suddenly everything changed. He thinks his time is more valuable than mine because he makes more. He's a few years older than me. When I remind him I'm his wife and deserve a simple text when he's not coming home, he tells me I should be grateful he's still with me when he has means to find someone younger. He can ignore me for weeks while he's traveling for work, but if I don't respond to one message while preparing for litigation, I'm a bad wife, unfit to be a mother. The things he loved about me are now things that he hates about me. Nobody is happier for his success than me, but he expects me to organize my life around his and kiss his And I don't do that because to me, he's just my husband, the goofy boy in my dorm who used to use office hours as an excuse to flirt with me. I finally left last month. I'm mourning the person he used to be 
and I'm traumatized by his change in character. People tell me there's a better out there, but I'm well aware that many men still have a problem with women doing just as well, if not better than them. I worry I'll never find the unconditional and unselfish love I felt in my youth. I got to tell you, this this deviates far away from what I imagine your original intention was of putting up Wall Street confessions. This is supposed to be fodder for, you know, hookup advice and cheeky things about which bars in Lower Manhattan are Bridge and Tunnel, where you find a Goldman guy, where you find a Morgan Stanley person. This starts to get very deep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that confession in particular, I've seen it come in or something similar come in quite a few times. And when I was posting it, before I was posting it, actually, I texted my friend who is in a scarily similar situation. And I said, hey, is this like your ex-wife? Like, can I post this? Um, And he was like, no. Um, I do think that people see the page as an outlet. And they say a lot of things, some of which I don't publish, uh, just for the sake of like maintaining the brand, but people do use it to vent. And I'm happy that I can kind of stay as that resource. Hmm. There's another poignant one here from uh, last year, kind of a, a, a child and father relationship. I've had to work all MDW. What does that stand for? Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day weekend. My dad woke up this morning and asked why one of the kitchen stools was broken. I confessed and told him the stress, sleep deprivation, and Adderall had gotten the best of me, and I kicked over the kitchen stool at 3 a.m. when my Excel started to give me that not responding BS. He just shook his head and walked away, telling me to replace it. He seems to be more concerned about the broken stool than my mental health. It's, I, you know, a lot of parents, and I hear this from contemporaries in investment banking, especially if you're a first-generation college person or you broke through or you were on financial aid in college, they can't understand how getting in a suit and going to a place where you get food brought in at night, you know, you get, you're on an expense account, you're making six figures a year, how something like that can be anything but privileged. Talk more, especially because you come from a working class existence of kind of this this dichotomy. It's expected that, you know, you could read back at the time of F. Scott Fitzgerald and it was the, the ground of elitists. But especially for someone coming in whose parents can't understand the particular kind of trauma and stress, there's really nowhere to go to. Yeah, I think it's a very common experience. And a lot of people who kind of come here and their kids make it they don't really understand exactly what their kids are doing. Um, personally, I work maybe 60, 70 hours a week. My parents just don't get what I do, um, and I've accepted it. But I think when you kind of have a charmed life outfacing or a privileged life, not just parents, but a lot of people like to discount your feelings and your mental health, and they think that money is the end-all, be-all, or it's the solution, or it should make everything okay, but it's not. I'm lucky that my parents have been relatively understanding in the past as far as like, you know, giving me access to therapy and mental health. But I really feel for the people who don't feel like anyone understands them or anyone cares, really. Wall Street veteran James Harmon, the former head of the U.S. Export-Import Bank, on how a visit to Africa spawned a whole new career. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to James Harmon. The book is Up and Doing, Two Presidents, Three Mistakes, and One Great Weekend, Touch Points to a Better World. I want you to take me to the late 90s when Hillary Clinton, and you're in the Clinton administration, urges you to go visit Africa and that experience in Ghana. Tell us about it. Yes. Uh, 
it was actually something, I think it was not too long after I had joined XM Bank as chairman and Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton had gone to Africa. Hillary had, had made a separate part of her trip and she came back and I was with her at the time and she told me about Africa and said, you got to get over there, Jim. There's, there's a lot of opportunities for U.S. businesses to sell products to Sub-Saharan Africa. And I, I would look into it, I said, right away. And I found out that no chairman of the Export-Import Bank in the United States had ever gone to Africa, Southern Africa, had never visited Africa. And so naturally the Europeans were selling more product to Africa. Naturally, they didn't know that much about the US XM Bank. And so I said I would go, uh, and she pushed me, but I could see after doing a little homework that this was a, a trip I should make. I did make that trip uh, shortly after her. Uh, and so you find yourself in Accra and you're getting a tour of a woman-led fishing village on the ocean. And tell us about the epiphany there. So, you know, when you make a trip like that, if you're a government official, they have your day so scheduled out and you're visiting large companies and you're visiting with the government and so forth and so on. But we were driving through with a typical entourage that a government official would have. And I was leading that trip. Along the way, uh, I saw some people fishing and I thought, let's stop and see what they're doing. I'd like to know what they're catching. So we stopped and, and visited, and I, they spoke English, and I was able to walk up to maybe it was 18 or 20 women. Uh, and so with, of course, when you're with them, you have also security. People are worried that someone's going to shoot you or do something like that. I was not even thinking about that, but they, I had lots of security. So I'm sure that our entourage would frighten them normally, but I asked them some questions. So how much do you catch every day? And what do you do with it? So they told me that, well, our problem is that half of what we catch die before we get into the market. So didn't take a rocket scientist to say, have you thought about buying a refrigerator unit that would put the fish into it so it would be refrigerated until you got it to the market? No, we don't have that kind of money. And so I said, well, supposing that we've solved that problem, would, would you be interested? And they were very responsive and very interested. And so uh, this is an example of how you can make a difference in government for anyone didn't take a brilliant person to figure out we had to just find a way to get them a refrigerated units. And so we immediately contacted my colleagues back in Washington and then got to the right people. And we were able to provide them with a refrigerator that would maybe it's even two units, not large. They could put the fish into it and bring it to the market. That would quadruple, if not fivefold increase in their so this take is and they would- this is capital formation. This is the real aha moment for you because you thought it was just a grant. You thought it was a public relations opportunity, but they paid back the loan and then some. Yes. When you're in that kind of position, right away, I want to cut interest rates. Why do I want to charge them so high interest? They're struggling small business of women, no less, who I would love to support. And so, but there are some requirements that we have in an agency like that, where you you have an agreement even among other countries as to what you can do with your interest rates. Anyway, we found a way to help them and they paid it back and they did well and they built the business, which was very nice. But there were a number of other experiences like that that I saw all over the world where the U.S. could help small businesses to grow. That meant we were helping job creation in some of the most troubled and poor countries of the world. And it didn't take a lot of effort to, to, to get them refrigerated units. Finally, Shelley Sitton Tajelski on converting trauma from her immigrant childhood into a drive to help others.
It's so fascinating how, you know, the shadow and persona of everything works, because to me, the memory of you, you were smaller, you were you were indefatigable, you were constant energy, you were uh, life of the conversation, popular in school, supremely motivated to the point that I think by middle school, you we knew that you were destined to not fully complete high school and jump into University of Miami and again, complete the medical programs as a six-year undergrad, right? Here we are. You know, 40 years or so after I met you, and uh, yes, I knew you were born in Israel. You came with your family to Brooklyn at age two. I did not know that you were kidnapped while waiting for your mother at the Brooklyn DMV office. And I further didn't know about your Iraqi ancestry and, and the peasantry and that we share, you know, something in common in ancient Babylonia. But first, unpack the DMV memory for me. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, you know, I don't remember it firsthand. I remember it as it was told to me growing up. And it was one of these stories that was always shared around, um, you know, dinner tables and mm. um, like a shock factor, you know, my my mother would just gently insert into like a conversation when people would ask about, you know, how we got here and what have you. She would just say, oh, and my daughter was kidnapped when she was two. And it, it you know, would create this like big pause of like, what? That's so crazy. Um, so basically, yeah, I was, I, listen, I was a very gregarious child. I know that's very hard to believe that I was outgoing and that I like talking to people. Um, and I, um, you know, would have this habit as well of going up to just strangers and start talking to them. And, and I was incredibly interested in people. Uh, and I still am to this day. And so I would imagine that I probably, you know, interacted with somebody in the waiting room at the DMV. And then when my mother was called in to get her eye exam and was obviously preoccupied with covering one eye uh, and trying very hard as a woman who did not speak English and was trying to, you know, focus on the test that she had to pass which I'm sure gave her a lot of anxiety and agita, I either wandered off or I was, you know, taken. Uh, but my mother, as soon as she, you know, completed the test, turned around and saw that I was gone. I was completely missing and nowhere to be found in the DMV. And there was a good Samaritan that day that sat in the waiting room that remembered me from her brief interaction with my mother and, and myself while we were sitting waiting for my mom to be called. And she saw me being carried off by a couple. Uh, and she immediately knew that she had a choice to make. She had to make a choice between either running in to try to find my mother mm. or running after this couple, knowing that there was something wrong because obviously I had not arrived with them. And she chose the latter. She ran after this couple, didn't think twice about the potential danger to herself, and followed them for city blocks into a housing complex in Brooklyn uh, off of Ocean Parkway and saw them entering into a building and then proceeded to run back to the DMV to tell my mom, like, I know where your daughter is. Follow me. And... Again, the, my mother did not speak English well at all. And so they were sort of, as my mom describes it, you know, speaking in charades. Um, and this woman finally just was like done with trying to explain to my mother what was going on, who at that point was completely broken down in, in, in grief and in fear. And my, 
she just grabbed my mother's arm and ran all these city blocks with her into this complex being followed by at this point the brooklyn or the the new york pd which was which was called to the scene of the crime and um and it took like a good you know few hours for them to make it through they had to lock down the building and go floor to floor to floor knocking on every single door looking in all the corridors and all the stairwells to see if they could find me and uh, you know second to last floor on this very tall building uh when the elevator's door opened to that second to last floor i was sitting there or i was actually being carried uh by this woman and i was as happy as happy could be i was totally fine i was not i had no awareness that i was in any danger i was smiling and laughing and of course happy to see my mom but couldn't understand why my mom was crying and so i jumped into my mother's arms i asked her why are you crying mom and she just you know completely lost it from the joy of the reunification and it's so interesting because the way i tell it in the book is that for so many years i honestly thought this was a story about me or a story about my mom's angst but really you know as i started to think about the good samaritan who kind of gets lost in the story as it is told at least by my family i was just fascinated by that moment of agency that she had that she was able to in a split second make a decision to again risk her life or to do the right thing on behalf of somebody that she didn't even know and i was fascinated by that and that really became you know a part of my life that began to inform a lot of the work that I would find myself immersed in for decades to come. You were listening to a special rewind edition of Full Disclosure. All complete interviews are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and recommend us. Special thanks to producer Claire Morgan at Notterly. And great news, in 2022, Full Disclosure starts airing across much of Virginia on WVTF Virginia Public Radio, spanning Charlottesville, Richmond, Roanoke, Blacksburg, and so many other towns in the Commonwealth. Follow Full D Radio on Twitter for all developments. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year.